Welcome to First Presbyterian Church of Allentown's Sermon Podcast. As we approach God's Word, let's take a prayerful breath. Breathe in. Breathe out. Listen to God's Word this day. Please join me for the prayer for illumination. Amid all the changing words of our generation, may we hear your eternal word that does not change. Then may we respond to your gracious promises with faithful and obedient lives through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our first scripture reading is Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I bear pain in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, for I will sleep the sleep of death. And my enemy will say, I have prevailed. My foes will rejoice because I am shaken. But I trust in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Our second reading can be found in Romans 8. We know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? It is Christ Jesus who died, yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed intercedes for us. Who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will hardship or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We continue our series today, Conversations with a Skeptic. And please note the word conversations, not a debate. 
And please don't assume that I am assuming that the skeptics are all outside the church. Indeed, I think if we're honest, there's a skeptic in our most of our hearts, at least sometimes. With that in mind, let us pause and pray. Oh Lord, it is your word we seek. And so we pray that by your grace, it is your word we hear through these human words. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Writing not long after Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans in his book, Letter to a Christian Nation, Sam Harris explains why he cannot believe in God with these words. An atheist is a person who believes that the murder of a single little girl, even one in a million years, cast out upon the idea of a benevolent God. Examples of God's failure to protect humanity are everywhere to be seen. Consider the city of New Orleans and Hurricane Katrina, for instance. How can God be all-powerful and good and yet let people suffer? That is a major faith question, probably the major faith question of our times. The skeptics argue either God is good or God is powerless, or not good, or God is powerless and of no use, or God does not exist at all, because how could a good God let suffering happen? Why don't you just scrap this God business, a friend of Nicholas Walterstorff said to him, after Walterstorff lost his son in a tragic mountain climbing accident. It's a rotten world, the friend went on to say. You and I have been shafted, and that's that. Indeed, in the face of tragedies and senseless suffering, it's not just the skeptics out of the church, outside of the church, who struggle with faith. Even the most ardent of believers may felt, find their faith shaken by a tragedy that seems to be evidence of an autonomous world with no God in sight. Shortly after Mother Teresa's death, it came out that she had struggled for years with doubts. Doubts that she had in the face of the tragedies that she faced daily in India. Remarkably, those doubts never kept her from doing God's work. How then do we respond both to the skeptics outside the church and the skeptic in our own heart? How can we believe in a good and loving God when there is so much suffering in this world? Well, we begin first by clarifying what we mean by the will of God. Ron Greer is a pastoral counselor who served my parents' church in Atlanta. He lost his son, Eric, in an automobile accident when Eric was only two. The week after Eric died, Greer was standing with a pastor friend when a woman came up to him and to offer support. Greer writes, she was struggling with what to say. Finally, she spoke of Eric's death being God's will, though we may not understand it. She then wished me well and excused herself. Greer continues, My pastor friend leaned over to me and whispered, Greer, if God killed your boy, I'm hanging up my robe. Does everything that happens reflect God's intentions for the world and for our lives? 
Is God the great puppeteer pulling the strings, directing every single action? Or is God just a well-intentioned spectator, kind but powerless to stop the fates? The answers to all three of these questions are no, no, and no. God wills what is good, just, and loving for us, as we will remind ourselves in a few minutes in the Declaration of Faith. But God created the world with neutral laws or principles like gravity. They are equally in force for the just and unjust. Gravity is a good thing. Life would be much harder without it. But when someone climbing a mountain falls a great distance, gravity will kill him. God intends, God wills for gravity to operate, but that does not mean that God wants a young man who slips and falls to die. In the same way, God did not create us to be puppets or automatons. God created us with freedom, with a freedom to love, with a freedom to say yes to God or to say no, with a freedom to do the right thing or the wrong things. Some tragedies, such as Sam Harris's example of murder, stem from our willful rebellion against God, our abuse of that freedom. And some tragedies, such as the car accident that took Greer's son's life, are the result of human negligence and carelessness. Not everything that happens reflects the way that God wants it to be. Far from it. We live in a world badly broken by human sin. Therefore, that tragedy happens does not mean that God does not exist or that God is not good. Second, why is not a question that we need to be ashamed of asking. But it's not a question that we will ever get completely answered before we die. Some suffering can be explained and justified. The consequences of human sin or carelessness or ignorance. And some suffering can be understood as the operating of otherwise neutral principles like gravity. But the bottom line is this. We cannot explain and justify all suffering. Why are children born with grave defects? Why do earthquakes take the lives of so many? As Nicholas Wolterstorff wrote in a journal he kept after his son's tragic accident, the meaning of the remainder is not told us. It eludes us. Our net of meaning is too small. When that happens, we cannot help but cry out, Why, O oh Lord, why has this happened? Why have you permitted this to happen? We hear that question implicitly stated in the psalmist's cries in Psalm 13, which we heard and read a few minutes before. How long, O oh Lord, the psalmist cries, will you forget me forever? How long must I bear this pain in my soul? We hear the question, why? Even on Jesus' lips when he hangs on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The Bible speaks truth, not just about God, but also about the human condition. Read the Psalms and note the unflinching honesty and the questioning of God in them. 
Sure, there are answers. Sure, there are expressions of faith and thanksgiving, but there are also questions and expressions of doubt and even anger. There are no glib answers, no easily spoken platitudes there. And so it is that like the psalmist, we need not hide We need not hold back our doubts and our questions. God is big enough to handle them, even our anger. But I can't promise you that you will get answers this side of heaven for all of your questions. Now we see in a mirror dimly the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. Now we see dimly, then we will see face to face. Someday, somehow, we will get answers to our why questions, but that day is not today. I don't know about you, but when death comes, I have a whole series of questions I want to ask God. Maybe not on the first day, but at least the second day. I know skeptics want certain answers to these hard questions now, but sometimes all we can do is to live with the questions, just as the psalmist does, and trust in God to provide an answer someday. Third, if we wonder where God is when tragedy strikes, we can look up, but we can also look sideways. A minister whose wife had just received a diagnosis that her cancer had returned confided to his friend, I think that without my belief in Jesus Christ, I would have a hard time believing in God. Hear it again. I think that without my belief in Jesus Christ, I would have a hard time believing in God. At first, I didn't really understand what he meant, but as I thought more about it, it made so much sense. In the face of tragic suffering, God, our creator, might seem abstract and aloof, far removed from what we're experiencing. But the Christian faith gives us a more complete picture of God. In Jesus Christ, we see God in the flesh. We see a God who's pitched his tent to be among us as one of us. And who knows what it is like to suffer? My faith in a good God hinges on what I see and know in Jesus Christ and not in winning some philosophical debate. In John 20, Thomas wants to see the Lord, but he wants to see something in particular, his scars. Doesn't Thomas represent us all? Those scars remind us that Jesus has been through it all, through the injustice of a kangaroo court, through the despair of being abandoned by virtually everyone, through the suffering of the whip and the cross, through the loneliness of death. In Jesus Christ, we see that God does not stand atop some mythic mountain far from the pains and struggles of human life. In Jesus Christ, God has descended in the valley to dwell among us, even to suffer and die. Jesus has been through it all. His scars remind us that our God is not only the God of sufferers, but the God who suffers. Of all the sermons preached at the Riverside Church in New York City, through all the years since it was first founded, 
Do you know what sermon is the most requested sermon? It's the one preached by William Sloan Coffin a week after his son's death in an automobile accident. This is how he began that sermon. As almost all of you know, a week ago last Monday night, driving in a terrible storm, my son Alexander, who to his friends was a real day brightener, and to his family, fair as a star when only one is shining in the sky, my 24-year-old Alexander, who enjoyed beating his old man at every game and in every race, beat his father to the grave. And Coffin later said, My only consolation lies in knowing that it was not the will of God that Alex die. That when the waves closed over the sinking car, God's heart was the first of all hearts to break. No matter what befalls us, no matter how far we fall, we need not look up when we're looking for God. We can also always look sideways because the great God of the universe is near. Jesus Christ was there before us, is there beside us right now, and will be there ahead of us showing us the way. Emmanuel is the name we give him at Christmas. God with us. Finally, how can you believe in a good God when there is so much suffering in the world? It's not a debate that you can win with a philosopher's logic or a mathematician's formula. There's too much mystery, too many questions for which believers admittedly have no answers. Perhaps then it makes no sense to the Sam Harris's of the world on the outside looking in that there is a good God despite that suffering in the world, a good God that we can count on. But it makes perfect sense from the inside of faith looking out. Hear the testimony of those who have found God in the midst of tragedy. Make no mistake about it. It has not been an easy road for them. There have been cries of pain and fear. Some have been angry at God. Some have even cursed God. Some have doubted God's existence or God's love for a time. But they found they were not abandoned. They found that even as they floundered in the stormy waters of suffering and grief, their feet ultimately found hard ground, a rock on which they could stand. Like Ronald Greer, the man who lost his two-year-old son, he ne I never felt alone, he writes. I was in the greatest pain I had ever known, not knowing what our lives would be like when the dust finally settled, but I always felt a certainty. I felt anchored, anchored in the conviction that I was grounded by something greater than myself, something supportive and profoundly gracious. Like the dear friend of Carrie and me who became a widow at 31, after her hus husband's sudden death by suicide. She would later write, part of God's work of redemption is surrounding you with faith-filled, obedient people who can remind you of his truths when you cannot see them for yourself. When my husband died, one of the first thoughts to crystallize was, I'm all alone now. <clears throat> On one level, this is true, she writes, 
but it is also decidedly false. Now looking back, I see how fully I was surrounded, how even in those darkest moments, God was pulling me close. Even then he was orchestrating a beautiful story of healing. There is no dark that cannot be made bright when God is in it. Like Lucy Atkinson Rose, preaching professor, wife, mother of a seven-year-old daughter who lost her four-year battle with cancer in 1997, but who wrote shortly before her death these words, The power that holds my life is God's, not mine. By God's grace, I have not felt crushed, driven to despair, forsaken or destroyed. In terms of eternity, mine is a slight momentary affliction through which God's grace is preparing me for coming into God's eternal loving presence. These men and these women discovered what Paul wrote to the Romans, what countless Christians have discovered and counted on over the past 20 centuries. What is that? That God exists indeed and that God is love. And that there is nothing, no tragedy, no suffering, no sin, no power, no death, nothing that can separate us from the love of Jesus Christ, our Lord Nothing. 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 Amen. Thank you for listening to First Presbyterian Church of Allentown's sermon podcast. We hope you'll join us for worship on Sunday morning. For more information about our congregation and our ministries, please contact the church office. Now go in peace.